because they've sort of accidentally bought something that falls outside their normal area of expertise and their normal methodology. So there's a little bit of culture shock, there's a little bit of trying to fit it into the mould, realising it won't fit and then wondering what on earth to do with it. Hello everybody, welcome back to Media Voices. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. That extract you just heard is from my interview with Chris Maillard, who joined Wine Magazine Decanter as Editor-in-Chief in January. We talked about his illustrious past at magazines like Top Gear and Maxine. Uh, mostly we talked about the balancing act of refreshing a brand like Decanter with its new owner's future without pissing off its incredibly loyal readership. That was a good chat. Fantastic. I did try to get a wine recommendation, but I only kind of partially succeeded. You'll hear it at the end. Okay, very nice. <laughs> and before we get into that, and before we do our news roundup even, we do want to remind you about our latest Conversations episode, which went out last week. It features insight from Eurosport and Podinstall about how you can transform evergreen content into podcasts with all the prestige and revenue that comes with it. So do go back through our feed or visit voices.media to listen to that fantastic episode. Really great chat. Nice one. We're going to begin with our news roundup, as ever, uh, but it's a slightly different tack this time because, Peter, you have posed the question, are things starting to change in local news? And this is off the back of, uh, I suppose, a reappraisal of what's been going on in UK local news after Local World bought JPI, and there's a Press Gazette interview with its boss, David Montgomery. So what about this made you think that we needed to take another look at local news? What's the what happened to Bestridge's law of headlines? Are things starting to change in local news? No. Well, are you... Okay, put it this way then. Are you optimistic about local news? Are you more optimistic now? <laughs> okay, so Bestridge's law in full effect. Um, no, I, I think things are starting to change, certainly certainly at JPI, because they've been, you know, since they were bought by, by local world. I just think this is an, there's been an interesting little cluster of stories this week that did give me hope that you know that we won't end up with no local news that we may end up with some local news i think the big one was this story from it was in the press gazette it's an interview with uh, david montgomery who was the boss at local world and is is now he is the boss at local world and it's also now the boss at jpi because they bought jpi last year november i think and he says um, that they, they made some changes, uh, I guess, to started when they bought it at the end of last year, but over the last six months, they've redeployed 150 journalists, so they've actually put them on individual local titles, who knew, <laughs> um, removed them from centralised positions, and they've done the same with the sales commercial teams, and they've invested in infrastructure. And what he says is that's helped them engage directly with the local community again <laughs> we're talking about local news being engaged with the local community seems like a good idea um and he, he's his or his the background that, that he draws i guess from when they bought gpi was that too many senior journalists who had been in the community for years sometimes decades he said had been moved to central management roles to kind of manage these hubs that they had 
And what he's saying is they've tried to get these journalists back into the jobs that they loved in the first place, and that's making a big difference to the service they're providing. It's an interesting, wasn't it? Do you remember we had a discussion not too long ago about the, the, the dangers of parachuting people in, effectively, without that local knowledge? So I was, I was literally just thinking, I, I seem to recall discussing David Montgomery's plans like just a couple of months ago. And okay, like time's kind of compressed for me, so it was actually six months ago we, we did that. But that's that's quite a quick turnaround to see in, in what is just six months. I wonder how much that's been impacted by the pandemic, though. You know what I mean? It's easy to kind of put these plans in place when you're not literally thinking about relocations and actually getting people back into local events. Well, financially, I think, you know, again, we're, we're in the usual situation of cost savings. They've saved £4 million by sort of taking out some of these central hubs and the central administration that was around that. They created seven regional hubs. Um, Revenue-wise, they lost 18% year-on-year in the first quarter. But that was lockdown, right? And then in the months since, you know, kind of April, May, it's been up around about 18%. So seems to be on track. I, you know what? If I could actually say if this would work, I'd be, I, don't <laughs> know, I'd, I guess I'd be David Montgomery. Um, but it just sounds like, it sounds like the attitude that we've advocated for, yeah. About, well, not just us. It was. I remember back when we were at media briefing, and this was kind of like uh, anathema Neil, to our to our bosses, Rory and Neil. Actually, if I could, if I could throw a little bit of cold water on this, it's <laughs> it's that it's that bullet point you put in there about targets of doubling online audience by the end of twenty twenty two. Now, are we talking about growing that from a very very small base now, off the base of off the back of you know most local news sites having been horrendous for years and years and years, or is this a genuinely ambitious target to get like? Well, either way, it's ambitious because they're doubling it. But, but, but I mean, yeah. no, like if, you, if you're doing local news, you, you cannot have audience, like mass audience yeah, targets like that because scale. the only way you achieve scale in local news is by writing big mm. stories that local people don't care about. And it is far, 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 far better to have a thousand local readers than it is a hundred thousand people sort of in the UK, the US, whatever else. It's, it's why we ended up with so many local news sites in the UK, like writing Trump stories all the time. And it's like, you're the Cambridgeshire Live. Nobody cares about like Trump on on this site. I mean, there was another interesting story and I feel I'm slightly conflicted by this one. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, So the youngest ever (laughs) reach editor has, is basically set to take over Norfolk and Suffolk Live, which are two news sites launching in the summer. Abigail Rabbit is only 23, which is amazing. You know, that she's she's been at Reach for, I guess, four years through the trainee scheme. That's amazing. Well done. Exactly. What must she have been bringing to the table for them to have gone, let's put our faith in her to you know yeah. take over these new ones? She must be. So she's the audience. I guess she's the audience editor on, on a Reach, couple of Reach sites. At the, or, okay, so where's the conflict come in? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think it's, Peter, you've written this down. <laughs> Because of her, because of her age, I assume she's not getting a senior editor salary. She's no, she, uh, she started as a trainee four years ago. So, no, regardless, I mean, I'm hoping they've given her. Sorry, I'm hoping they've given her a bump up every time she's taken on a more senior position. She's still not going to be making a senior editor salary. So, in a sense, his reach. You know, is she, are they getting this insane? appointment on the cheap 
and I, and I, yeah, I don't know. I haven't a clue. I don't know anything about salaries at reach. But you see this talked about all the time in media. You know, we saw. I think Brian Morris. He was talking about it on, you know, in relation to B two B media, young people being put or younger people being put in positions rather than more senior people who would be making more money. And you know, I, I, I was running two magazines at 25 so i'm not complaining <laughs> no seriously and if anyone knows i'll go tell get in touch and we'll talk, absolutely speak to her we oh, yeah, 100%. um so what is then the alternative to this kind of <laughs> reinvestment in local news hubs not even hubs rather in in sort of local news uh provision by actually getting people back into those communities what is the alternative for that well it's the the stories we've discussed so far seem to be an investment in sites that people go to to get news. But there's been, and I know we've discussed Access and Substack recently, but there's been this kind of move that there seem to be these businesses, businesses that think newsletters are going to be viable businesses on their own. So I think Substack, um, Substack launched this scheme a couple of weeks ago where they said, you know, if you submit a proposal to us, we'll invest in you as individual journalists to launch newsletters on Substack. And actually, they've picked three UK journalists for that as part of the 30, what was it, a million split between 30, I think? Um, so Manchester, Liverpool and no, Sheffield. No, it's not as many as that. No, it's a million between, I think it's 12. Oh, maybe it was going to be up to 13. They've just, they've chosen 12. Um, so yeah, uh, Manchester, Liverpool and Sheffield are all getting local news newsletters written by journalists as part of that, which is quite, quite, quite exciting, I think, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, it's all, it's this, so this guy, uh, Joshua Herman, set up the Manchester Mill, I guess, I don't know, a year ago. Um, he charges for it, £7 a month, and he's spunning, <laughs> spunning? <laughs> he's spinning out the Liverpool and Sheffield titles. The grant from Substack is letting him look for a full-time journalist to to do this Liverpool post. Um, <laughs> again, I'm so conflicted by this. I think the ambition from him in this is amazing. You know, for for an individual to say, "I'm going to cover the news and." in in manchester and he, you know it's, it's not it's not like here's the local flower show he's he's like done this investigation into how brexit came to be supported in oldham over a 20-year period after the riots so it's pretty pretty heavy stuff yeah that's really good and also great name my <laughs> but my my concern again is it's just this reliance on the what is fundamentally a platform you know when substack changes its mind what happens okay but when substack changes its mind he can take his subscribers and go elsewhere i think that that, that that's the thing about emails compared to you know if you if you've got a page on facebook and facebook turns the algorithm down if people have agreed to get your email in their inbox they will always well pending any spam filters they will always get it yeah. and that's been that's been axios's bet is that is that if yeah, if you've signed up, you're you're saying you, you're welcome into my world. It's not that you're constantly fighting to reach people who've liked your page on social media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the the point with that is, you know, you're right. And what he's saying, what George Herman is saying, is that the only long-term viable solution to problems of local journalism is getting people to pay for local news. And I think he's right to a point. 
you know, if you can get someone to pay £7 a month and you do take your audience with you, you've got control. Excellent. But local advertising is a really, really big deal. Facebook's local advertising during lockdown went nuts. And and to be able to win some of that back, <laughs> you know, without getting into, oh, the duopoly stole our money. <laughs> no, that, that, that's a technology conversation. It needs to be easy for small local businesses to, to basically book that ad space. So, I, you know, overall, <laughs> we've got some options here. Britain is different from the States. And that's oh, my God, yeah. It has definite news deserts. We don't have that here. But still, no. We're not. The country geographically isn't big enough. I was reading about that earlier, actually, because they've got Project Oasis, which is, you know, it's, it's designed to specifically to counter those news deserts. And there was this really fascinating stat in there. There's a point article put in the notes. Which is talking about the amount of nonprofits that you know subsist on philanthropy, effectively on one-off big cash donations, and how there's still a significant amount of headroom for local news to capitalize on that. They reckon that the amount that local news nonprofits get from philanthropy and donations is roughly around half of the total that most nonprofits get. So if you can get that messaging right, as the Guardian has done, but for local news, then there potentially is another source of revenue there. Although, again, you don't want to just be relying on philanthropy. No. I mean, talking about this, this, this is exactly what, exact what Actions are so looking at doing, because they announced this week that they're actually, well, it was revealed this week that they're actually on pace to get $5 million this year from their local newsletters. And they've already got 350,000 subscribers four months since launching, which is, I mean, that, that, that's from six newsletters. That's pretty good going. I, I need I need to look more at that. I, my, I think we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, and my, my thing is still that you're missing out on a, quite a lot of the community aspects of it if you're just doing the newsletter. So it, it might be it might well be working for Axios and for the people who are doing those newsletters, but for the community, you're still sort of missing out on something that local news used to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be an interesting one. To, that's definitely an interesting one to watch, though, because if that works, then we're going to see so many other existing publishers try to horn in on that. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they've already announced that they said this week they're expanding, they're launching an additional eight this year what they, than what they were hoping to. So that's, they're obviously seeing some success there and seeing that yeah, it can I mean, theoretically work. Yeah, that's a big deal. And now onto the news in brief. And amid post cookie confusion, Amazon is planning to launch an identifier of its own. So the e commerce giant has been meeting with different companies to discuss plans for an identifier that will allow advertisers and publishers to better track and measure activity within its own ads ecosystem. Effectively, it's bidding to be a bigger part of the triopoly than it was before. Wow. So you probably didn't know this, but Donald Trump, remember him? He had a blog. He had this blog called From the Desk of Donald J. Trump. Well, it's been permanently shut down, not by Facebook, not by Twitter, but by him, because he realised no one was reading it. Hee hee. Um, it failed to gain traction. Pfft, don't know what that actually means. Just that there was only a couple of head cases reading it instead of millions of head cases. I think it was two, it was it was two hundred and fifty thousand total visits, but given that he used to have followings of like millions yeah, on yeah. social media, this is a big big argument that deplatforming works. Yeah, certainly. I mean, people will say that people said that you know this is this is not an argument about free speech; it's about free reach. Yeah, absolutely. And talking Facebook, UK and EU regulators are coming together for the first time since Brexit and are investigating Facebook over whether it's abusing its dominance in digital advertising. I mean, it, it, is it? <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, they're basically investigating specifically whether um, Facebook has unfairly used its vast trove of data to compete with individuals and businesses, but specifically in cases relating to Marketplace and its dating platform. So yeah. So the, the only time I heard about Facebook dating recently is when a mate asked if it was a scam and if there was a lot of catfishing going on. <laughs> That's there. a fairly existential question, to be honest. <laughs> uh, and this, this next one's kind of interesting because I have personal experience with this. So website duplication where content is lifted from a website and hosted elsewhere without permission could be costing UK news publishers millions in lost revenue and resources, according to Press Gazette. So Esther, you flagged that something I'd written for the drum was immediately, like within a couple of hours, hosted on this other site, which was like glamsomething.com. Yeah, I've had loads of stuff taken from what's been publishing and posted on Arab.today, which is like the site is still live and it's still scraping loads of content from the sun and, and all sorts of places. Uh, oh, I don't even know where to begin with this one. Twitter has this week launched Twitter Blue. Uh, which is this much vaunted, much rumoured subscription service designed for power users. Power users, by definition, someone who's willing to pay $3 a month um, for exclusive features. Ah, there's a good article on this by Josh Benton. Um, is it worth $3 a month? You don't have to worry about it if you're not in a Canada and Australia, to be honest. Not for or on or on anymore. iOS. They've only launched on iOS, which is a oh, massive really? issue because America's the only place where there is that much iOS dom dominance. Everywhere else, it's pretty much fifty-fifty. This week, I spoke with Chris Maillard, who joined Wine Magazine Decanter as editor in chief in January. Decanter was part of Futures TI Media acquisition. And Chris has the enviable, unenviable, he has the challenge of refreshing the brand without alienating its incredibly loyal readers. But first, I asked him about his illustrious career in magazines. Yes, my illustrious career in magazine publishing. Yeah, if you find it, do let me know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I started um, my career in publishing in the very traditional way in, an old, in a local newspaper, a uh, very old established uh, local newspaper, the Nottingham Evening Post. At the time it was run by uh, a sort of local nobility, as they often were, and the print plant was downstairs from the editorial offices. So at about 12 o'clock you heard the, the presses start up. And there were people wandering around with trays of hot lead, and it, it was fully traditional. In fact, I had Graham Greene's old typewriter, because he, he worked on the Nottingham Evening Post. Just uh, just ridiculous. A, a vanished world, I have to say. Once I'd done the kind of the traditional local newspaper thing, I moved to London to work on magazines, just uh, musicians' magazines, in fact, because I was in a series of increasingly terrible bands. And um, did that for a while, got into other magazine work, freelanced around the place, as, as you do worked on some of the nationals and then sort of fell into doing what turned out to be the launch of Auto Express. And as a result of doing that, I ended up helping to launch Top Gear magazine for the BBC, which was kind of fun because it was the BBC and the budgets were fairly bendy. And um, yeah, we, we that, was, that was a big success quite quickly. Uh, funnily enough, um, when we started, the programme was a pr traditional magazine programme with lots of quite sort of old school presenters and you know among whom were Jeremy Clarkson and 
couple of other people who went on later, but um, but it was very traditional. We we launched the magazine and it was much more kind of upmarket and conversational and a bit pointy. And um, then the TV series went off air uh, for quite a long time. The, the commissioner at the BBC kind of hated it. She liked gardening programmes and stuff and, uh, and didn't understand Top Gear. So eventually it came back uh, with pretty much the format we'd invented in the magazine. And another weird thing was that sales went up while it was off air. We thought wow. the magazine was doomed. We thought that was it, but sales actually increased. Very strange. So yeah, I'm in some small way responsible for Jeremy Clark. So I'd like to apologize yeah. to the world for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, after that, I went on to Maxim, the men's magazine. Uh, went on, on there as editor, and uh, that was interesting because it was right in the middle of the frenzy of the 90s yeah. and the um, the whole men's magazine boom. Uh, I mean, I must say, I wasn't 100% comfortable with uh, with that type of thing yeah. at that point. It was all getting to the point where the editorial people were seeing the end of the tunnel approaching, and the publishing people were just keen to get the nipple count yeah. up. And it was, uh, yeah, that, that was that was sort of messy for us. Yeah, it's a weird lot. I mean, it was huge. You did you did one issue. I read you got half a million copies. Absolutely, um, I think we had a free we had a free Mars bar. Right <laughs> never never underestimate the power of confectionery on a magazine cover. Um, but but I mean, as I, as you know, I know, I know you. You're not you're not a. a, a an old school male, you're not a Neanderthal, you're fairly evolved. That must have been kind of weird. Well, it, it was, but at the same time, this was actually a bit pre the moment when it all went truly bonkers with zoo and nuts right, and things. Right. Um, Maxim at the time was sitting in the middle of that market, and I went in with the idea of trying to pull it up market towards Esquire and GQ. Yeah. And trying to kind of tone down some of the, the the racier stuff and make it into a sort of intelligent men's magazine with quite a lot of gadgets and watches and whatever. And because um, I, I could see the way the market was going at that point, it was clearly going to head in that direction. And you either got into that particular lifeboat and tried to make it more lifestyley, or you were going to go down in a blaze of you know blaze of nipples, as it were. Yeah, it, it didn't really work out because I think the, um, you know, as as they do, the publishing director at, at the time had one eye on a, on a fast exit. So he wanted to get the sales figures up as much as possible and then run away, yeah. uh, which he duly did. And then the magazine duly kind of folded eventually uh, sometime after I left. You know, after that, I've, I've done all sorts of other stuff. Um, went over to the... Um, the contract publishing, yeah. customer publishing side of things. Uh, did the Sky magazine for John Brown for a while, which was absolutely gigantic in its day as well. I mean, it was doing kind of, I can't remember what it was now, something like five million copies a month. Oh. Yeah, just insane numbers. And um, although we, it was a sort of weird thing because nobody at Sky actually liked it very much. They, uh, they, they added the magazine to your Sky subscription. Uh, there was nothing you could do about that. Uh, at quite a high fee and then clawed back the VAT because magazines were not that registered. So uh, yeah, kind of cunning, um, but it did mean that we were doing something that nobody particularly was particularly invested in creatively. But um, but yeah, all, all the way through that time, there's been this sort of, you know, from the, from the early 2000s onwards, really, there's, there's been a kind of 
a, a feeling in the industry. The sort of mood, mood music has been vague panic. Um, you know, oh, oh, it's a decline, or we're all doomed. Uh, so not entirely unconnected to the fact that the other thing that was running around the industry was that let's give all our content away on the internet for free. Uh, but yeah, there, there has been that, and at times it's felt like that scene in a James Bond film where he hops from alligator to alligator across a river. Um, and, and I think I mean, you're kind of um, you, you're just keeping ahead of it some of the time. That's quite a nice segue <laughs> to where you are at the moment. You're at Decanter. You're the editor in chief of Decanter. Uh, Decanter was bought by Future Publishing. A medal of 2020 as part of that TI media acquisition. And you were brought in the beginning of this year, 2021, to, to sort it out. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, it, it had been editor in chief list for quite a long time. Uh, and obviously, Future felt they needed somebody in that post, which was, um, which is probably true. Sorting out isn't necessarily the way I'd put it because weirdly, um, although Decanter is a funny old beast, it's a successful one. It's, almost accidentally built up what looks like the ideal modern publishing portfolio. It's got a very successful awards event, uh, the World Wine Awards, which yeah. makes a fortune. It has very good other events. Some of them are moved virtual this year, of course. It has a paywalled website, which does very well, and also a, a non-paywalled element to the website on top of that, which gets good traffic. It has a magazine, you know, a traditional print magazine, which has a very faithful subscriber base and a very good set of clients. Advertisers still pay a fairly large amount of money to go in a magazine and it, it makes a profit, which is just weird in this day and age. And it's great, you know, it, it's, it's, Decanter is, is a very strong brand. One of the interesting things about it is that obviously it was IPC, or it was originally launched independently and then IPC bought it many years ago. And IPC became Time UK and Time UK became TI Media and TI Media, Media is now owned by Future. Yeah. Um, so it's been through quite a lot of owners in a relatively short space of time. And, and we all know how that happens. The, the, the people who are selling don't replace staff when they leave. They cut costs. They they sort of push quality down a bit to make the food, the bottom line look good so they get more when they sell. Then the new owners come in and they go, oh, I think we can cut some costs here because they've told their investors that's what they're going to do. So, you know, they do more of the same. Uh, you know, they make a couple of people redundant and trim things a bit further. And then they sell out and the same process happens again and the same, you know, and you get kind of death of a thousand cuts. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's an absolutely classic problem. And Decanter, you know, has been through that process many times, and um, and it's you know, in some ways, it's like the the last dog at Battersea Dogs Home. You know, it's kind of it's lost an ear and it's limping a bit, and, and this tail's a bit scruffy, but it's still going. Yeah. And 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 I think that the job now is to build it back up, um, to give it some stability, and to really make the most of what is actually a really really good brand. I actually subscribe to Decanter, and and I love it. You've got that classic niche, aspirational niche, uh, where people will subscribe to the magazine because they, they want to belong, they want to feel part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a, it's an absolutely great brand in terms of loyalty. I was looking at some numbers the other day, and our average length of subscriber is something like 11 years. I mean, that's enormous. 
And I do regularly get letters from, from people who go, I've been subscribing ever since 1975, and um, that's when it started. Um, I've been subscribing since 1975, I've got them all leather bound in my study. You know, and you think, wow, you know, that, that, that's kind of proper reader loyalty. That's very impressive indeed. I mean, admittedly, the reason they're getting in touch is normally to moan about something we've done to, to modernise it. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, that's a massive challenge for where you're at. You're taking this, you know, established, loved brand, and Future is a fairly innovative, fast-moving company. You're trying to merge those two things together. Well, I remember talking to Tim Arthur on a panel once. He was talking about a timeout redesign, um, and he got this email from a, a reader, and it was quite formal. You know, re your recent redesign, and and then when he opened the email, it was just the C word in about forty point type inside. He just sort of raised this anger in the audience by doing the redesign. Do you, are you worried about that? Yeah, I mean, I have had some 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 emails from people. Um, which are the sort that would, in previous times, have been written in green ink and underlined oh, yeah. three times. And, yeah, and, and, and yeah, some of them, some of them, quite funny, I have to say, um, because the the canter audience is well educated, yeah. clever, and often quite witty. And some of them have been very, very well worded. Um, but yeah, you know, people who have been subscribing since 1975 are not desperately keen on change. And it is a real balancing act to um, sort of moderate the, the level of kind of change that we do to fit that the readership. And well, we have just redesigned the magazine uh, and it has been a balancing act because while you want to redesign the look of the magazine, while it badly needed refreshing, the overall tone of, of Decanter for a long time has been sort of brown, verging on beige. And it, it, it needed bringing up to date, and we've done that. But I've also been incredibly careful to try and keep the elements that, that long-term readers like and make sure that they know that they're kind of looked after, make sure there's a sense of comfort, that it hasn't been completely ruined. Um, whether I've entirely done that is another question, but it's, yeah, it, it's always been at the back of my mind that you can't just kind of throw the baby out of the bathwater and, and make it into sort of ID or something. It, it's it's got to be quite kind of measured. Is part of your role to try and expand that audience? The thing you can't escape about the the, the far end of the, um, the direction of travel for... Um, for Decanter's print subscribers is that, you know, to be brutal, they are, some of them are kind of aging out of the market. Yeah. Um, it's what an old publisher of mine called biological leakage. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, and, and, and they have been all for a long time and they're a great readership base, but there are a lot of enthusiasts in, in, the, in wine who are in their thirties and who are interested in learning about wine in the same way that a lot of our long-term long subscribers were 30 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I've tried to push the learning coverage up. I've tried to, to make it into somewhere you go to find out about wine if you're not already equipped with a cellar and a, yeah. a pile of vintage claret. It's got to be accessible to people who are on their way up the ladder as well as people who are already very knowledgeable and uh, have spent many years cultivating that. Future is actually one of our pandemic publishing winners. 
because of the e-commerce sort of affiliate revenue plays. Is that something that you're looking at for Decanter? Well, it's it's a very interesting situation because um, I'm kind of fighting on two fronts uh, with Decanter. One, of course, is external. Um, you know, we want to widen the audience, we want to increase traffic. We want to, I mean, our premium uh, subscription service that the the online paywalled uh, bit of the website is doing extremely well. And it's picking up a lot of readers who are from the USA. Um, it's picking up a, a, a wide spread of readership. So that's all great. And, and, and my kind of one of my jobs is to make sure that continues to happen. But the other one is uh, internal, which is that Future as, a, as an organization has made its name and has made, has done a very good job, uh, largely in the tech sector and then the kind of the gaming sector and things like cycling, kind of young men's leisure pursuits, bit geeky, uh, a lot of possibility for e-commerce, for affiliate yeah. revenue. And, uh, and, and that's all great, but it's bought TI this future is a very acquisitive company. Um, it's bought TI because it could, couldn't really resist all of the brands. But some of the brands in there don't fit the traditional future mold. Uh, I don't know, it sounds a little weird saying traditional about something that's been going about kind of five years. Yeah. But, um, but you know, the, the future style has been very heavily built on this huge traffic, big e-commerce revenues. Wine doesn't work like that, sadly. Wine itself is sold by a, an absolute gaggle of small producers and independent merchants, and there isn't a sort of there certainly isn't an Amazon equivalent. You know, if you if you get huge traffic on a particular set of product reviews and say tech, you, and you're thinking, oh, e-commerce, you go to Amazon, you go to maybe Sony or Samsung or Apple or you know one of the big or one of the few big players in the market. Uh, it doesn't work that way with wine at all. So uh, my my other battle internally has been to try and convince Future that the model that Decanter runs on isn't actually the future model and possibly couldn't be yeah. in, in the way it works. And the worry for them is is that they don't quite understand how this is all working, but it's making a fortune. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're, on one hand, they're loath to mess with something that obviously is obviously working. But on the other hand, they don't really have a great deal of experience at the high end of the market where we sit. So, you know, they're, they're, some of our stable include things like horse and hound, yeah. uh, motorboat and yachting, which features million pound super yachts all uh, the time. Yeah, like even magazines like Wallpaper, you know, that's just not the same thing, is it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, they, they are, I suppose, are our closest stable mate. Um, yeah. In fact, one of the, the guys who's been working uh, design on Wallpaper uh, David Graham came over to help us with the redesign, so yeah, we work quite closely with with them at times. Yeah, they, they, they again they are not a future brand in in the traditional sense. Um, they, they're not going to ever going to get the sort of traffic numbers that something like T three or Tom's yeah. Guide will get, but they have a, a very um, a very high end, quite loyal, quite wealthy consumer. So um, it's an interesting one. I mean, it's it's something that that I really hope Future will get their heads around very strongly because they've sort of accidentally bought something that falls outside their normal area of expertise and their normal methodology. So there's a little bit of culture shock there. There's a little bit of trying to fit it into the mould, realising it won't fit and then wondering what on earth to do with it. January 2021, 20, I guess, is 
when you started. I'm assuming you haven't met anyone you work with. No, um, there's as it happens, the uh, the sales director is somebody I worked with years ago, so I know her. Um, everybody else, I literally, I have no idea how tall they are. <laughs> it's, it's you know whether you know they have something growing out the backs of their heads. I, I literally have no idea because I've only ever seen them on screen. It is quite uh, quite weird. What's the hard part of that in in you know in terms of actually getting the job done? Well, in terms of um, getting day to day stuff done, you don't have the ability to have those short, casual conversations. You can't wander past someone's desk and go, "Oh, what are you doing?" or "How's it going?" or "What's this thing? What's happening with this thing?" You uh, you have to book a call, which is probably half an hour minimum, in two days' time, to talk about something that would previously have taken you a couple of minutes. So it, it's it just makes everything very kind of cumbersome and slow. It's yeah, it's not been easy, I have to say. And doing a doing a redesign uh, where you can't all sit in a room and look yeah. at things stuck to a wall yeah. and and kind of discuss them uh, has been really quite um, quite a job. So we, we've um, yeah, we, we've kind of scraped through it, and, and and you know things like the post mortem, which you would often have mm-hmm. uh, you know in the pub, um, has, has been yet another Zoom call, and, and it's it's um, it's it's also difficult to. To get any of the, uh, I suppose, any of the more human terms of feedback, you can't you can't judge body language. You can't judge um, the kind of the general vibe, as it were, yeah. from a Zoom call. It's very difficult. So everything has to be slightly more formalised. It makes it quite difficult to uh, to do stuff that reads and looks interestingly sort of informal. Everything tends to be a little bit too stilted. Yeah. But it's uh, yeah, it, it's it, but it's where we are, and at some point we will be going back to the office, and um, they'll find out that I'm three foot four inches tall, and uh, and it'll be fine. Do you think it's harder doing that sort of stuff for a print title than it is for web stuff? Um, no, because it's all people, really. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of I have the same sorts of conversations with with people doing the print work as as I do with the people doing the websites. Um, it is just that getting getting over what you mean is, is has to be a much more formalised process in any case, uh, whatever you're dealing with, and it, it can lead. To, I mean, it's like the, the the old thing about email being the worst possible form of communication because you don't get nuance, yeah. and 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 it, it's it's very much like that. It's it's nuance is something that you kind of don't really know you're going to miss until you miss it, and it's. Uh, it's quite a, a big. Um, it's quite a big element of any creative process, so it's 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 all a little unsubtle. Should you know when you're going back into the office? Uh, well, we've got our annual awards uh, judging going on, and it literally takes about a month. It's enormous. Wow. It, it's a twenty thousand old wines uh, coming in, oh, just about every master of wine in the country, load of sommeliers, uh, tons of experts, all piling in to to blind taste thousands and thousands of wines and that is actually that would normally happen at excel but uh we've stripped out our offices and the whole thing is happening in there to allow a a greater degree of uh separation and covid proofness and all that sort of thing so uh so our office is actually out of bounds till um the end of june at the earliest um so we'll probably be drifting back from july onwards i think 
I think there's a plan to come in one day a week and then two days a week and then maybe three days a week and so on. Whether it ever gets back to kind of everybody in the office all the time is quite another question. I mean, one of our people has moved to Bordeaux, for instance, so the commute, the, the commute's a bit tricky. That award sounds incredible. I've bought wine that's got that sticker on it, you know, a decanter award winner. How did that... How does that come together? Is it every year? Yeah, absolutely. Is it separate from the magazine? Is it like a whole separate organisation? Well, we've got a big events and awards team, and they they right. do events with the magazine, um, because we do kind of fine wine encounters, as we call them, the virtual masterclasses this year, uh, where it's kind of virtual wine tasting. Um, but they also handle the awards, and there's a lot of them whose job it is just to make sure that this thing happens every year because it is so enormous. Brexit's been an issue. Uh, obviously, COVID's been a massive issue. It's it's been uh, yeah, it's been a real head scratcher. But yeah, we've managed to get it together. We managed to get it together last year rather amazingly uh, in mid-pandemic. This year's slightly more relaxed from that front, but we've had Brexit-related customs hassles getting wine into the country. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a whole a ball of fun, and um, but yeah, the, the the team who run it are very good, and um, they're very on top of this stuff. We generally ask our guests to recommend some media for our listeners, but actually, I'm going to subvert the process and ask you to recommend a wine. I can't do that. Oh, that's rubbish. It is a bit rubbish, actually. But uh, I'll tell you what I, I would recommend is Albarino is a very good this time of year. Uh, Al, and the Portuguese version, Alvarinho, um, which exercises our chief sub to no end um, because it's very similar but slightly different. You can't endorse a particular label, but you can you can give us a punt on a, on a particular type of wine. Excellent. Oh, go on then. Tell me, give me some media. Give me, give me something that you've loved recently that you would recommend to our listeners. Anything at all, like a podcast or a film or a TV show or a magazine. Or, or a magazine even. Yeah, that would, yeah, we still have those, don't we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, actually, um, you know, back in the, in deep history, um, I was working on musicians magazines, which were at the time fairly kind of rough and ready, and most of them don't exist anymore. But it's something I kind of kept a vague eye on over the years. And there's a really lovely one from America called the Fretboard Journal, which is everything you'd want from a magazine. In that it's kind of it's thick, it's got a decent amount of advertising in it, it's beautifully put together, nicely photographed, kind of subtle, and it's a classic niche title. Um, it doesn't have a huge number of readers, but the readers it, it does have uh, are, um, are perfectly happy to go and blow £5,000 on a guitar or something. And, um, and it, so, yeah, it, it's, a lovely, it's a lovely thing. I think that, that would probably be my pick. Hello again, everybody. Chris here, just me for the outro, I'm afraid, as we have a couple of little tech foibles. If you would like to help us alleviate those issues in the future, then you can head across to co-fi.com forward slash media voices, and you can kick us a couple of quid either on a one-off donation or every single month in order to help us keep improving both the quality and the quantity of Media Voices content that you do receive. So if you have the time to do that, then please do. It's always very gratefully received. And if you would like to receive more Media Voices content in the meantime, you can head across to voices.media to sign up for our daily newsletter. So it contains a link to the four most important news stories that we've identified from the previous day, in addition to a link to our latest episode, and occasionally a couple of puppy or baby photos from the Media Voices team. 
Additionally, we do have a new conversations episode out in which I talk to Yorksport and Podinstall about what it takes to really generate a fantastic podcast business off the back of your evergreen content. So you can go across to voices.media or check your feed for that episode. I had a really great chat chatting to both Sarah and Ord, so I recommend that you take the time to listen to it yourself. I'm sure that you will get some fantastic pieces of advice from them as I did. But until next week, when I'll be back with Peter and Esther and another tour through all the news and views from the media world over the past week. And in lieu of Peter, it would be remiss of me not to finish this episode by saying, Stop Brexit!